The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. You know, we've been, we started this series last week called Death of a Disciple, and last week we talked about being dead to sin, and we talked about what it looks like to kill sin. Well, this week as we continue walking through, we're going to be continuing in Romans chapter 6, where we started last week. So if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 6. If you do not, uh, there might be a Bible under your chair, or you can follow along on your smartphone, tablet, whatever. We will assume you're texting, but that's okay, because we judge silently here. All right, so Romans chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 15, all right? Follow along with me there. Romans 6, beginning in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's interesting here is is that Paul is using a picture of slavery when he talks about how we relate to God. It's a strange choice. Why would Paul use slavery as, as he tries to, to use an analogy or he tries to find an analogy about how we relate to God? I mean, if I were to do that same thing here, right? If I were to do a sermon series on the antebellum South and I were to describe all of the, the atrocities that, that our country did to all of these slaves that we had in the 18th and 19th century, and then I said, by the way, I want you to put yourself in that position. That's how, that's how we relate to God. That would be offensive, wouldn't it? I mean, that'd be gross. That would be something, I, I would definitely get some emails on that one, right? Like that would be, that's an offensive idea. Why in the world would Paul use this language? And I think one of the reasons he uses this language is It's familiar. He says there in in Romans chapter 6, he says, I speak in human terms because of your limitations. I'm trying to find an analogy that you can wrap your head around uh, when it comes to our relationship with God. And and this slavery was incredibly familiar. Now, first century slavery didn't necessarily look like 18th and 19th century slavery. Sure. There were, there were cruel masters, I am sure of that. However, people were slaves because they were spoils of war. People were slaves because they were born into it. People were slaves because they sold themselves into slavery because of debts they couldn't pay. And so he uses this because it's familiar. To the Romans' audience, it would have been incredibly familiar. You know that the Roman Empire, at one point, one-third of its population were slaves. One-third. So that means that teachers and doctors and blacksmiths and all of these other people, they could be slaves in those positions. One third of the Roman Empire. The Jewish audience he's speaking to would have understood this as well. They would have understood slavery. If you look in the Old Testament, there are laws in the Mosaic Law about slavery, about how you treat slaves. And that on the seventh year, if they're, if they're a brother of yours on the seventh year, you offer them their freedom. And that you can't steal someone and sell them into 
slavery, which is what we saw in the 18th and 19th century. The, the punishment for that under the Mosaic law is death. So they're incredibly familiar. This is a familiar picture. This is one of the reasons why Paul uses it. But another reason is because it's accurate. It's an incredibly accurate picture of how we relate to God. Now, it's not perfect. And I, I want to show you three ways it's incredibly accurate. And then I'm gonna, we're going to end with one way it is not. But, but three ways it's accurate. Number one, everyone has a master. Everyone has a master. Look there in verse 15 through 16 again. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, here it is, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Everyone serves a master. Everyone, absolutely everyone. Jesus speaks of that in Luke 16, 13. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Now, certainly, I have to admit that I have tried to serve both God and money. And certainly, you can probably say the exact same thing. It doesn't matter if you have no money or a lot of money. There's something appealing about that. There's something that we want to chase after. But really, fill in the blank here. You cannot serve God and sex. You cannot serve God and your career. You cannot serve God and theology. You cannot serve God and your relationship. God and fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. Because here's the thing, whatever, whatever we have out there, whatever has our main attention and our focus, that is who we are serving. And everyone has a master, absolutely everyone. And you say, why in the world is that true? Why is it in the world is that true that my heart, according to John Calvin, is an idol factory? Why in the world is that true? Because we are natural born worshipers, all of us. And you might say, you know what? I just heard Annie sing and my voice doesn't sound anything like that, right? Well, listen, I feel your pain, okay? There are times I hear Christian Annie sing and then I'm like, well, I'll never sing again, right? Like, I, I feel your pain on that. But here's the thing, it doesn't matter if you can sing or not, the point is you are, you are made to worship. All of us are made to worship. We are made by God to worship him. That's why we have masters, because we are natural born worshipers. We are made to give our attention and our affection and our time to God. And if we don't, if we choose to give that to someone else, here's the thing, we will give it to someone else because we are going to worship. Whether we give our attention and our affection and our time to God where it was designed, we will give it somewhere. So if you don't choose to worship God with your affection, you will worship someone or something with your affection because we are made to do that. I mean, think about affection. We love love, don't we? I mean, Valentine's Day just happened. You know, last Monday I was kind of going through my calendar with my wife. It's kind of what we do at the start of the week. What do you got going on this week? And she said, what do you got going on Tuesday? And I was like, well, I got this thing. And then, and then in the evening I have this meeting. And she goes, well, no, you don't because it's Valentine's Day. And I was like, no, oh, I'm looking at my calendar. I do. It's right here on the calendar. And she goes, no, I mean, we're going out to eat. And I was like, Angel, this is a made up holiday, right? Like this is a hallmark holiday. Like, I love you, baby. I love you today. I'll love you tomorrow. I'll love you the day after, right? And she said, well, I might not love you the day after if you don't go out to eat with me. So we went out to eat. Like your affection is going to be set somewhere. If not on God, on something. Because why? You were made to worship with your affection and you are a worshiper, you will worship. We're made to focus with our attention. You'll either put that on God or you'll put it somewhere else. Anybody in here a hobbyist, if you, if you grab on the hobbies, maybe you're like me. I'm either all in or all out on a hobby. That's me, right? And so, for example, there was a moment in my life 
I've repented of since then, but there's a moment in my life where I cared about golf. I know, I know, I know. I just threw that out there. I know. Don't judge me too bad. But there was a moment in my life where a friend of mine, he was an excellent golfer, so he's like, I'm going to teach you to golf, and he's like, here are these clubs. And I went all in. I went all in, right? Like I, like, I bought every little gadget. I read golf magazines. Like, I watched it on TV. Like, we had, we had, I had practice balls in my backyard. I was hitting over my fence, and then I hit a real ball once and hit my neighbor's house, so I stopped doing that. But, like, I was all, I was all up in it, right? Because here's the thing. God made me to give my attention somewhere. And if I'm not going to put it on him, I'm going to put it wholly somewhere else. Why? Because we are made to worship with our attention, if not on God, on something else. We're made to worship God with our time. And if we don't focus on him mainly throughout the day, if we don't focus on him mainly with our plans, with our future, and and with our families, then we will focus on something. Whether that's our own plans, our own dreams, our spouse's plans, our children's plans, we will focus on something. Because why? We are made to worship. And whatever you worship masters you. Whatever you worship will master you. And so that's, that's the reality. Everything around us and everyone around us are potential masters to us because everyone has a master because everyone worships and everything that you worship becomes your master. Now that can be an incredibly liberating thought and an incredibly terrifying thought. Why? Because of the second reason why this analogy is incredibly accurate. It's this, your master has power over you. Your master has power over you. Look there in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? A master determines everything for the slave. A master determines everything for the slave. The master determines your entire future, determines your your present, determines absolutely everything about you, which is terrifying if your master is sin. If your master is not God, that is terrifying. We know this master. Everybody in here knows this master. Intimately, we know this master. This is a cruel master. This is a master that doesn't care for us. This is a master that leads us to painful and destructive places. But your master has that complete power over you. It's terrifying. What an incredibly wonderful thought when we recognize that our master is the Lord Jesus. And this understanding of Jesus' master has completely changed my life. I call it this mentality, I call it the Master Jesus mentality. And ever since I've started having this Master Jesus mentality, it has changed my life. Since I've acknowledged that he is 100% powerful, I am 100% powerless, it has completely changed my life. I don't argue with his commands, I don't try to debate his revelations, he is the master and that is enough. That is the start of me and the end of me. He is the master. And that has changed my life. It has been so freeing to just simply say, you are the master. You have complete control over my everything. To say with 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether I eat or I drink or whatever I do, I do it for the glory of God. I do it for my master because he is in control. His commands have complete power over me. His commands, I don't have to worry about my feelings or my comfort or my concerns or my questions, his commands will always overrule me because he's the master. And so when he says to me, you need to be generous, I don't have to worry about my concerns because all I have to say is, well, my master told me to. When his revelations are uncomfortable to me, I don't have to worry about my questions or or, or any of my concerns because why? Well, the, the master told me to. And so we can be, we can, it's the most freeing experience just to say, you know what? You are master Jesus and I will do as you say. And so that is the mentality we need to have, that master Jesus mentality. He is your master and he has complete power over you. 
And you might think that is just, that just seems so ah, depressing. And that just seems like religion just putting things on you. No, no, no. Don't, don't get it twisted here. You have a master. And that master has complete power over you. I'm saying that the only master that leads us to freedom, the only master that sets us free is the master Jesus. That's the only one. So you have a master. You are under the control of something, under the power of something. What I'm telling you is you can choose to make that master Jesus. And he is a good master. And there's nothing more freeing than to just look at him, to look at his commands, to look at his revelations and to say, I trust you. You are the master to not have to think through everything, to not have to just argue through everything, just to submit myself to him and say, the master says so. The master says so, which is good news. Because if your master is Jesus, this third truth is good news for you. Your joy depends on your master. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We see the fruit of obeying our old master. We see the fruit of obeying our new master. Our old master leads to two things. Shame and death. Shame and death. Shame is powerful. Shame is incredibly powerful. Think about it. Shame destroys self-worth. It it destroys people's future. It keeps a victim from pursuing justice. Like shame is a big, big deal. I want you to think, I'm not trying to bum you out. I want you to think about the last time you felt shame. I mean, really ashamed about something you, you said or something you did. Even remembering it right now, be honest, even remembering it right now is painful, right? Like it is a powerful, powerful thing. And that's where our old master leads us to 100% of the time. He leads us to a place where ultimately we will be ashamed. We'll be ashamed of our thoughts. We'll be ashamed of our actions, ashamed of our words. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. I can't even look at this person in the face anymore. That is where our old master leads. But he also leads to death. Ultimately eternal death for those who never trust him, never trust the Lord but also leads to death in our relationships and leads to death in, our, in our, our relationship to God. We grow callous towards the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit the more we choose our old master. It leads to death. But the new master leads us to what? Being a slave of righteousness leads you to, it says, sanctification and life. What is sanctification? Well, that is the process of being made holy. This means that as you follow the good master, he will make you more like himself. That's where following our good master leads us. He will make you more like himself. I want you to think about the best uh, believer you can possibly think of, a Christian that you look up to, a Christian who opens their mouth and grace just kind of spills out, a Christian who is kind and patient no matter the situation, the kind of Christian who can smile in the DMV. You know what I'm talking about? That type of Christian. I want you to imagine that type of Christian, the person who, when you're around them, the faith statements that come out of their mouth astound you. You know, the type of person that their love for God is absolutely tangible. You think that there's a good chance that they actually bought a valentine for him all right like they love him that much there is something real there something tangible there 
That is what God does for us. That person did not start out that way. That person submitted to our master over and over and over again. And our master was faithfully leading them in this process of sanctification. Faithfully leading them to know more and to learn more and to be more like Jesus himself. That's the first fruit of following our good master. So you want to be like Jesus? There's no other master that will lead you there. No other master. Only Jesus will. The second thing the good master does for us is life, leads us to life. Life eternally, it says there in verse 23, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But also that life, we don't have to wait until this life is over to experience that. We get that life now. We get to see that eternal life worked out in us now. When lives change, relationships uh, are, are healed, when, when grace and mercy are extended and it doesn't make any sense, you're getting to experience heavenly life now. It reminds me of a story I heard this past week where this, this guy I heard speaking went to a prayer meeting in Vietnam. And uh, they brought this, this man in, this really small, like shriveled up man who uh, his feet didn't even touch the ground. And the reason he was so small was that when he was a child, um, Agent Orange was dropped over where he lived. And so it stunted his growth. It caused him all kinds of medical problems, but it didn't stop this man. What this man did was he went on uh, to plant hundreds of churches in Vietnam, hundreds of churches. And so they bring him into this meeting. And, and you know, one of the things that happened because he planted so many churches, uh, the Viet Cong saw that and hated that. Uh, of course, it was not illegal to be a believer, and so they went and they grabbed him and they, uh, they tied him to a stake outside for two years. He lived outside tied to a stake, and they tortured him to try to get him to turn away from Jesus, and once they realized they would never break him, they cut him free, um, and so he's at this prayer meeting, and, and all of a sudden, this man comes running down the aisle and falls at his feet, like wraps his arms around this little man's legs, and he says, I was one of the guards that tied you to that stake. I hated you. I hated you so much. And I hated you for your faith. And nothing we could ever do would break you of your faith. I hated you every day. But I was wrong. I am so sorry for torturing you. I'm so sorry for tying you to that stake. Now listen, that man had an opportunity. That victim had an opportunity to respond to the man who had done horrors to him. I can't even imagine what happened in that moment. That man follows our master. He submitted to our master and heaven came down. He looked at that man and he blessed him. He could have cursed him. Would anybody in here have faulted him for cursing that man after what he did to him? No, none of us. In fact, if this had been a movie scene, right? Like if this had been some movie we had seen or whatever and this got to the end, like here's his accuser or whatever, that would end with him just, I, I don't know, saying some cool uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger line and then blowing him away, right? Like that would be the end and we would celebrate that, right? He got his revenge. But heaven came down through this man and he blessed him and he blessed the country of Vietnam. That's incredible. How in the world does that happen? He submitted to the master. And the master said, you're going, to, you're going to bless. You're not going to curse. The master says, you're going to forgive. The master says, you're going to be gentle. You're going to be kind. You're going to be merciful. You're going to extend grace. And so the master said it, so he did it. And heaven came down. Eternal life was experienced in that very moment. The story gets crazier. I don't want to go into all of it, but basically another man comes down, an American who happened to be there on vacation who was one of the pilots who dropped Agent Orange in Vietnam, came forward 
and fell at his feet and, and said, you know, I, I never considered what I was doing and that there might be innocent people and all this other stuff. Would you forgive me? And again, he blessed that man. Why? Heaven comes down. Eternal life is experienced every single day through those who submit themselves to Jesus as master. When we do what our master says, heaven comes down. Eternal life is experienced right now in the middle of us. If your master is sin, you will only find shame and death. He controls your joy, and the only path that's waiting for you is, is uh, shame and death. But if your master is Jesus, then your path is life, and not just life waiting at the end, not just eternal life, but eternal life now, eternal joy now. These incredible experiences of grace and mercy will come out of you, and you'll experience heaven coming down now. That's what happens when we follow our master. The fourth Part of this analogy, the one that I don't think is, is accurate is this. You pick your master. Now, if you were a, a spoil of war, you didn't pick your master. If you were born into slavery, you didn't pick your master. If you were sold into slavery because you couldn't pay your debts, you didn't pick your master. But we do. We pick who we serve. Back to verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the ones whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. Present yourselves. You're making a choice to pick your master. You present yourselves as obedient slaves. How often do we present ourselves as obedient slaves? I would argue daily. And how do we do it? Well, let me give you an example. So uh, for Christmas, I got uh, an Amazon Echo. So if you guys don't know what that is, just a, the little speaker or whatever, and it's got Alexa in there. Um, and uh, you don't have to feed her or anything. It's really great. But she's like, she's in there, and you just talk to her, and you say, Alexa, What's the weather today? And she's like, it's, it's, uh, it's Memphis, so it's crazy, right? Or you say, what's my, what's my email? And she's like, read your email, whatever. Well, there's pretty much only one thing that Alexa ever hears from our house every day, and it's this. Alexa, play the Trolls soundtrack. Like, that is our move, right? Now listen, before you scoff and you're like, Trolls soundtrack, listen to it, all right? You got Justin Timberlake on it, right? And it is just, it's just bumping. Every time we hit the Trolls soundtrack, it is dance party in our house. Absolute instant dance party. Doesn't matter when we do it. Sometimes before dinner, hey, Alexa, hit that, hit that Trolls soundtrack. And then, boom, it comes on, right? Now, I don't even want to begin to sing one of the songs because it will then just start this horrible thing in my brain where it will not turn off for another 24 hours but when that music hits like our house goes nuts like they start dancing they start going crazy they love that they love that music and so one of the things we did was a couple of uh, weeks ago uh, we were about to bring our kids to Mother's Day out up here and so before we left the house we asked Alexa hey play the troll soundtrack dance party breaks out you know per usual well here's the thing like, as the day progresses, like, it just kind of set the theme for the day. Those songs were stuck in my head the entire day. I'm singing them the whole day. But also, my kids, they just kind of, like, they just left the house. They bounced out of the house. They bounced into the, into the van. They're still singing the song, right? Like, it just kind of set the theme for the day. And I'm suggesting that every morning we pick a theme for our day. We do. We pick a theme for our day. Now, you might say, no, 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 I'm incredibly busy. I, I barely make it out of my house with, like, my shoes on my feet, okay? So I'm not stopping to think about picking a theme for my day. I would disagree. 
You could pick a theme of being rushed. That could be the theme you're picking. You could pick a theme of being aggravated. You could pick a theme of, uh, of being worried or, or being anxious. You absolutely could pick a theme. But what I'm saying is that everyone, every morning, sets the theme for their day. And what I'm suggesting is that you stop. You stop your day. Just like we did with Alexa and the Troll soundtrack, you stop your day and you spend time focusing on the Lord and you say to the Lord, I am yours today. I am yours today. You stop, spend time in prayer with him. You stop, you think about your day. You think about what you have to accomplish today and think about it in light of the Lord being with you that day and what he wants to accomplish that day. And you set the theme of your day and let that theme be, I pick you this morning. I'm serving you this morning. Set the theme of your day. The second way we pick him as master, it says that we are, in the scripture it says, obeying the teachings, right? So we call, calling him master doesn't make him master. In Luke chapter 17, there are 10 lepers as Jesus is just passing through. There are 10 lepers. They're standing off from a distance. This horrible skin disease, things falling off their body, right? They're standing at a distance and they call out to Jesus and they say this, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. And so Jesus turns to him and he says, well, go show yourself to the priest. So they go, okay. So they start walking to the priest thinking, well, that was a good waste of time. And on their way, their skin begins to clear up. They begin to be cleansed. They begin to be healed. And so they're all looking around. They can't, they can't believe it. Well, one of the 10 runs back to Jesus, falls at his feet, and begins to worship and praise God. The other nine continued on their way. 10 lepers, 10 of them called him master. One of them made him master. 10 called him master. One of them made him master. A master is not truly served just by our words alone, just by waking up and saying, God, you are my master. If he's really our master, then we will choose, like this leper, to fall at his feet in obedience. We will fall at his feet in obedience. So how do we obey? You know, in John chapter 13, Jesus does something shocking. I know you've heard it before, and I know it's not that shocking to us now in our culture, in our society, because we don't really experience it much, but... But Jesus began to wash his disciples' feet, humbles himself to that point of, of, of literally washing their disgusting, dirty feet, cleaning them with the clothes that he's wearing, the towel that's wrapped around him. And he says, you've called me master and Lord, and rightfully so. And he said, now look, I'm washing your feet, so you do the same thing as I, that I'm doing, right? A servant's not above his master. You do exactly what I am doing. So daily. If we choose to serve our master, Jesus, then we will do as he does. And Jesus is a foot washer. Jesus is a foot washer. So if daily we say, he is my master, Jesus, I am choosing you. Today I belong to you. Then every day we are waking up and we're saying, sign me up for foot washing. That's me. I'm on team foot washing right now. And I want us to look at, I don't think that that means that we're going to actually touch feet, unless you're a podiatrist, you should probably touch feet. But I, I don't know if, if anyone else will, right? Or, or should, that might be really strange. Like, I'm just trying to love you, let me touch your feet. I don't know, that might be weird. But what I am saying is that we should have the same attitude of Jesus, the foot washer. And so there are three questions that come to my mind that I think if we ask ourselves and how we act and how we interact with people, I think will help us have the attitude of our master Jesus, of our master foot washer. And here are the three things I think we need to ask ourselves. One, what's the most helpful choice? What's the most helpful choice? A foot washer is always concerned with what other people need. 
A foot washer is always concerned with what other people experience. I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus was concerned with his disciples' needs. Their feet are dirty. This needs to be taken care of. And so he took care of it. He said, this is the most helpful thing I can do. Was it the most, did, did, it, did it exalt Jesus? Did it make him look really awesome? Was it, was it like a really honorable thing to do? No, 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 no. But that wasn't the question. Jesus said, what's the most helpful thing I can do here? I'll wash their feet. And that's the same thing. We have to live with that attitude in our work and in our homes. What's the most helpful choice? Because a foot washer is always considerate of the needs of other people around us. What do they need from me? What do they need to hear? What do they need to see me do? What do they need me to do for them? What's the most helpful choice here? The second question, I think, is what is the most humble choice? What's the most humble choice? A foot washer cannot wash feet with pride. There's no way you can wash feet with pride. There's no way. Because one, it's the lowest position there. It's the most, it's, it's almost like the most dishonorable thing that you could do as a servant. So you can't do that with pride. And so oftentimes we need to have the exact same humility as our master Jesus. And we need to ask ourselves, what's the most humble choice here? I need to relay this information to, to my boss or to this coworker. What's the most humble way I can do that? I have to, I have to go uh, talk to my wife about this or I have to go talk to my children about this or I need to go talk to uh, this person about this. What's the most humble way I can do that? I have to, I have to reprimand somebody. How do I do that in the most humble way possible? What's the most humble choice? And I don't think you can go wrong. You wanna love God and love people? I don't think you can go wrong by asking yourself this question over and over again throughout the day. What's the most humble choice here? What's the most humble move here, regardless of the context? I'm in line at Kroger. What's the most humble way I I can interact with people around me? What's the most humble way I can respond in my family? And the third choice, what's the most honoring choice. What's the most honoring choice? Jesus honored them by doing this. They needed their feet washed. It was an honorable thing to do. And, and a foot washer is always concerned with the honor of other people. Always. We don't want to make a choice. We don't want to do something that would dishonor another person. So we're always thinking that. What's the most honoring choice here? Going back to some of the examples, like what's the most honoring choice here? I have to deal with a coworker. What's the most honoring way I can deal with them? I'm being treated unfairly. Regardless of that, how in the world can I honor this person that's treating me poorly? How, I've, got to, I've got to reprimand this subordinate at work. How can I do that and honor them at the same time? I've got to deal with this conflict in my family. How can I do that and honor them at the same time? What is the most honoring choice? If our master is Jesus and no servant is above his master, then we need to come to the realization that our master is a servant. Our master is a foot washer. And if we want to submit ourselves and not just in lip service say he's our master, but follow our real master, then we will be foot washers and we will ask ourselves, what's the most helpful choice I can make? What's the most humble choice I can make? What's the most honoring choice I can make? Because if our father, if our master is a foot washer, then so are we. We are now dead to sin and now we are alive to righteousness. We are now slaves to righteousness. We are now slaves to Jesus. And that is wonderful news. It's wonderful news. Because we will have a master and there is no better master than Jesus, the master Jesus. And our master will determine our joy and there is no joy outside of our master, Jesus. 
And so daily, may we submit ourselves to our master, setting the theme of our day, I am following you. May we submit ourselves to our master foot washer and say, I will have the same heart, the same mind as you do, Jesus. I will humble myself. I will honor others. I will be helpful to others. Would he help us do that? Would you, would you pray with me? With everybody's head bowed and eyes closed, I kind of want to ask a question. I mean, everyone has a master. Really, who is yours? Is Jesus really your master? Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This picture here in the scriptures is of surrender. If you confess, he is your master. If you believe it, believe in your heart that he's alive and he rules and reigns as master over your life, then you will be saved. Have you surrendered to our master? Have you really? I mean, I'm not asking about playing games. I'm not asking if you come to church. I'm not asking if you, you think Jesus you know, uh, was, was a great teacher or anything like that. I mean, really. I'm not asking if your parents believed do you believe? Have you surrendered? I'm not asking if you've prayed a prayer, walked a Nile, been dunked in water. I'm not asking any of that. I'm asking you, do you believe that he's your master? Have you submitted to him as your master? He calls the shots. If not, what's keeping you from doing that right now? What's keeping you? My guess would be it would be a, a, another master. We've already seen there is no value in other masters. There's no master that leads you to joy. There's no master that leads you to life outside of Jesus. What is really keeping you? If you would say nothing, not anymore, then would you pray this prayer with me? You don't have to do it out loud. You don't have to say it verbatim. The prayer isn't magical. This isn't something that seminary gave me or, or anybody gave me that if we gotta pray it this way or it doesn't count. This is just simply a giving you words for how you're feeling now, giving you words for the decision you're making in your heart and your mind. If you wanna surrender to Jesus, make him your master today, then would you say this prayer after me? You don't have to say it out loud. You say it in the quietness of your heart and mind. Just communicate this to the Father. Say, God, I believe you are who you say you are. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. I believe God raised you from the dead. And I believe that you are Lord. You're in charge. Jesus, would you forgive me? Jesus, would you be my master now and forever? Give me a new life. I surrender to you. Be my master. In Jesus' name, amen.